Spirit Radio Podcasts. News in the, in the papers today that GPs have been issued a 38-page contract in relation to their provision of abortion services. Now, interestingly, uh, the response to this, and by the way, this is uh, coming from the doctors who would describe themselves as pro-choice, pro-life, it's a, a broad spectrum, has not been a positive one. Um, uh, basically talking about concerns that, that many GPs have been talking about for quite some time. But one of the things that's highlighted is just the two-tier system. €450 Euro for a GP to provide an abortion, yet just 250 euros to look after one during pregnancy. So when a woman is continuing the pregnancy during these antenatal visits. This is just one of the many flaws uh, in in this legislation, GP say. And on the line to give us his thoughts, I have Dr. Andrew O'Regan, who's a GP himself and indeed a lecturer as well. Dr. O'Regan, thanks for joining us. Good morning and thank you, Wendy. So tell us a little bit about this contract then that's being sent to GPs across the country. This is basically outlining, you know, the, the, the T's and C's of signing up to provide abortion in your practice, is it? Indeed. Now, just to state, I haven't received the contract yet. It hasn't been sent out to our practice. And I can also tell you that the vast majority of GPs in this country will not be signing it. And that's in spite of the rather lucrative um, fee that's going with it for providing abortions. As you stated there, uh, they're offering GPs €450 to, uh, to provide abortions, which will involve two and sometimes three consultations with the patient. Uh, and that's a stark contrast to what is offered to GPs for providing care to mothers who will go ahead and have their babies uh, in this country. So for that fee, for that there's a fee of about 250 euro. Uh, it's a, it's it's really really uh, appalling when you look at the the difference in the way this is weighted up, and it says a lot about the minister's priorities. How do you feel, and or maybe actually you can tell us a little bit about what happens, Dr. Regan, when a woman comes to you as a GP for her antenatal visits? It's one of the quotes today we have uh, Dr. O'Toole talking about holistic care. Those antenatal visits, what do they entail? Well, what we mean by holistic care is, is that we look after every aspect possible of our patient's needs, and there is no other part of medicine that that is done more uh, more fantastically than in than the antenatal care. So the care that the GP provides in conjunction with the obstetrician to a pregnant woman, that will usually involve about six visits, but it's often more than that because there are always issues around blood pressure and various worries that people have during pregnancy. And any pregnancy-related concern uh, that a woman might have, she will feel uh, very, very much at ease coming into her GP on the same day and having that dealt with appropriately for no extra fee. So that involves six six visits uh, at the very least uh, prior to the delivery. So during those visits, uh, care is taken to look after uh, lifestyle factors, vaccines, blood pressure, checking the urine, and of course checking the the, the woman's abdomen as well to hear the baby's heartbeat. One of the, I, I, for me anyway, and for many of my colleagues, one of the most rewarding parts of being a general practitioner is when you put the monitor on the on the abdomen and you hear that fast heartbeat and you you see the the sort of the relief and the joy that I know you've experienced yourself, Wendy, of when a woman woman hears that for the first time. And then that's followed through then to delivery. And after delivery, the woman comes back with the, with the baby uh, at two weeks and again at six weeks. And that's all covered in what we call the maternity care scheme. And GPs will look after 
the woman before and after pregnancy and of course the baby as well before and after And pregnancy. what strikes me I suppose just of your kind of um, telling of how it works I've done, it, I've done the kind of GP led system myself during pregnancy and I, I, I echo what you're saying in terms of my experience where the doctor really gets to know you because it's a lot of visits and it really is holistic in terms of going through your concerns, making you feel at ease Now contrasting that with um, abortion services, so three visits and it's, it's, it doesn't seem very, uh, I mean of course I, I would say there's nothing holistic about ending the life of a baby but um, it's quite mechanical it's, there, there's, there's nothing said in this contract about offering any sort of alternative support counselling or anything it's all just about establishing a date and giving the medication out, is that right? It's a huge disappointment Wendy and if you just take a step back from it and look that there's a contract being given for the specific purpose of, of what the Minister is describing and defining as ending the life of the fetus so visit one will be a consultation to discuss that and for the GP to sign off on it. Three days later, visit two will involve a doctor prescribing and perhaps dispensing a medication that will cut off the blood supply to the fetus, cut off the nutrient supply and the oxygen supply so that the baby will die. And then on the third visit, uh, there will be a follow-up visit that may or may not be attended by the, by the woman where, where um, the GP would provide um, advice going forward on contraception and that. So that's the, the cold reality of what's on offer by the minister. But the money, the, the, the ridiculous uh, irony is, is that the, the money is almost double that for looking after a healthy woman through the pregnancy uh, and to deal with the, the baby during a pregnancy. As what well. sort but of a message does that send? I, I think it's sending, it's, I, I think on one hand, uh, that sends a message out that you know antenatal care, looking after a woman so that a baby is 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 born and that the woman and baby are looked after to the highest standard, that that is not as important as what the minister wants to deliver by January the first, which is a a basically abortion on demand system, and it, it, it's really a political game. And I, many of my colleagues would feel now that we're being used as pawns in political manoeuvres so that the minister can achieve his deadline of the 1st of January. And, and it's no harm in reminding people as well that GPs on the ground still have not been engaged by the minister and we haven't been listened to at all in terms of the many, many concerns that exist among general practice. And it's interesting, I mean, and, and we've talked about it before, just on that point, Dr. Regan, how there has been no consultation. And today the quote is coming from the president of the National Association of General Practitioners who describes themselves as a pro-choice doctor. And it seems even with doctors who would, uh, who would provide the service, on this contract, they even haven't been consulted at that level. So is it, is it just about steamrolling this legislation through whatever the cost? Unfortunately, that appears to be the case. I mean, you would be aware that of late 650 GPs signed a petition calling on our college board, so the Irish College of General Practitioners, to hold an extraordinary general meeting on this because we feel there are too many unanswered questions. As I said, we feel that we're being used as pawns in a political game, that this is not about health care in any manner of means. And of course, the, the most important thing for uh, quite a substantial number of us is freedom of conscience. And as I said before, what, what is being outlined currently does not give a genuine protection to doctors who, who have a conscientious objection to getting involved in this. How did you feel, Dr. O'Regan, during the Oireachtas Health Committee hearings where the amendments that were put forward uh, were discussed? I, I know, and I think only one of them passed. Um, how did you feel about the Minister's attitude to those amendments? 
especially again, freedom of conscience, the one that... Yeah, again, I mean, I think it's important for the likes of me who, you know, I'm vested in, in this uh, because I'm a GP and I'm going to be affected, but just to take a step back and look at the way the whole process is being conducted, I mean, everything seems to be done with absolute speed. And if you look at some of the genuine concerns that have been raised, freedom of conscience being one of them, things like proper disposal of, of, of fetal remains, all that has been raised. And the way that it has been dealt with and the way that debate has been shut down and the way that that very genuine and well-meaning and reasonable amendments are being twisted to sound uh, to sound like something very different to what they are. Uh, and that's being done at a political level. And it's, it's extraordinary that that approach would be taken with something as important as abortion, a life and death issue. What would you like to see happening, Dr. Regan? Well, I, I think... I mean, I mean, so far the process has been very disappointing. It, it has, it's been no way to deal with this issue. And what I'd like to see happening now is, first of all, that the minister would take time out and slow down the process. And that, that people in government, and I think it may be beyond the minister at this stage, that, 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 that Leo Radker himself, as a doctor, as Taoiseach, um, as, as the Minister for Health boss, that he would take time out to actually take control of this situation and to seek expertise from the ground, because that hasn't happened up until now. General practice has not been listened to, and I think that there will be an awful lot of chaos and an awful lot of bad medicine if general practice isn't listened to between now and January the 1st. Dr. Andrew Regan, thank you so much for joining us on Spirit Radio this morning. Dr. Regan is a GP and also a lecturer as well, just talking about that 38-page document sent to GPs in relation to abortion being provided in their practices. Well, there was good news in the US earlier this month at the midterm elections because there was a record number of women winning seats there. I don't know, is it the start of a change in paving the way for increased gender balance in politics? Of course, it differs in every country. And Ireland is lagging behind many of our European counterparts in terms of our representation in politics. So what are the reasons? What are the barriers? What are the things stopping women who perhaps want to enter political life but don't take that next step? Well, there's a very interesting organisation that seeks to try and help women who want to do that, who are thinking about, hey, maybe I could have a career in politics, but I'm not sure how to go about it, or perhaps there's a a confidence issue, or whatever. Anyway, it's called Women for Election, and they do lots of things like mentoring programs and and different programs that aim to support women who really would like a career in politics. And one of their aims is really to try and get more women, uh, because there's so many confident, capable, fantastic women who perhaps for various different reasons haven't entered political life when they just need that little bit of support in order to be able to do so. On the line to tell us a little bit more, we have the CEO of Women for Election, Kirin Debris. Hello, how are you? Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the programme, Kirin. Good morning. Thanks, William. Delighted to join you. So, first of all, just tell us a little bit about the current situation on uh, women in politics in Ireland at the moment. How are we represented and have we made any improvements in the last number of years? Well, women, as, as you well know, and as, as most of us are very aware, women are, are more than half of the population. We're just over half the population. But unfortunately, we're just about one-fifth of our political representatives. So in the Dáil, there are 35 women out of 158 TDs. So that means 22% of TDs are women. And just a little bit lower amongst the council chambers, 21% of councillors are women. And that's just not good enough. While it is an improvement and it's a significant improvement, 
Um, particularly the last general election, we saw the number of TDs rise significantly from um, coming up through from 15% up to 22%, but we need to be a lot higher. And we often hear, and we, we hear people talking about the barriers to women entering politics, and particularly um, we we'd hear chat about the, the five Cs, uh, and their cash, childcare, confidence, culture, and the candidate selection procedures. And these are seen as, as the, I suppose, the systemic barriers to, to women going into politics. What we've found in Women for Election, that confidence is the key issue. Yeah, it's interesting. Meet- it's kind of, um, I, I've talked about it before, just in, in general, kind of women in business and other areas, Kieran, where it's, it's, it's interesting that, that how, for example, uh, you have a, a man and a woman going for a job interviewer looking at a job and there might be six or seven kind of aptitudes that they're looking for. The man might have two or three and he'll go for it. The woman might have two or three and the confidence isn't there. Where is this lack of confidence coming from? Exactly. And and we hear about it all the time across a whole range of different areas and and different work areas and and I suppose different aspects of life. And I suppose the the lack of confidence could be coming from a whole pile of different things. We, We would talk to some brilliant women who are active in their local communities, who are on the, the Tidy Towns Committee, who are on the, the school board, who are active in their local groups. Um, now, to me, that is politics. That is community politics. But people don't necessarily see that as politics and don't see as one uh, being relevant to the other um, in terms of representative politics. But in terms of addressing the confidence, that's where Women for Election come in, because we do a lot of training around a whole pile of different areas. So we would have our Inspire training, which is for women who are thinking about becoming candidates. And we would focus particularly on communications, confidence and campaigning. And then we have, I suppose, our more specific, detailed masterclasses that look at different aspects of running for election. And what, what it could be running the practical, for, the practical side of what it actually entails and the work that needs to go into it. Exactly. So we would have had classes, master classes around campaigning, around communications and, and how to, to put your best self forward and how to, how to do messaging around that. We'll have classes in social media. We have one tomorrow around SIPO, the Standards and Public Office Act, which is really looking at the, the do's and don'ts of going forward in election from a legal perspective. Um, and all of these are threaded through with building women's confidence as well and seeing how their experience is relevant to politics, how it is valuable to politics and how we need more women putting themselves forward uh, into politics as well because we need to be more than one-fifth of council chambers and the doll chamber. We need to, to have a political system that represents and reflects our society in all its complexities and, and all its different hues. One of the things that you mentioned in your in your list of C's, Kieran, is the selection process, which a lot of people mightn't be familiar with. How does that um, sometimes act as a barrier for women who are perhaps thinking of, of entering politics? Well, the, the selection process varies across political parties and, and obviously doesn't apply to independent candidates. Uh, but for those who are looking to run or to get on a ticket for a party, the, the selection process varies. But I suppose there are a couple of common themes in that candidates need to be nominated, they need to go to selection convention, they need to get the votes of their peers, so their party colleagues and members within their their local area or their constituency, 
and they seem to get more votes than the other candidates putting themselves forward. Um, and, and that can be a huge barrier. And a lot of times that does come back to confidence, but it's also about roles people have within party structures, the uh, links and networks they have within parties. And one of the, the common themes that we hear is that political parties, while they're very keen to involve and engage women, structurally, you know, for example, their meetings are often late in the evenings. Uh, women who have young children, now women and men, but the, the childcare responsibility does often tend to fall to women more, find that they're on at times that don't suit them. And they don't have then the same opportunity in terms of building those networks within parties. That's, um, that's a very key point, and it's very interesting. And I wonder, is there? A, I hope there is, or maybe we really need to push more an appetite to actually say this is a, the, the reality that we want more women in politics. And if when we have women and men, and women and men working enough, and both mum and dad out working, that means that a, a lot of structures, and even just that example you gave, Kieran, of just thinking about the times that meetings are on, have to change to make it more flexible, more family-friendly. Um, so it's not kind of putting women off who, who don't want to have to, um, you know, sacrifice... But, time with their family or or and, and things like that but is is that really thought about and is part of the problem a kind of uh, self-perpetuating thing because there isn't because we need more women in there saying things like those meeting times don't work or you know i'm dropping the kids off at school this day and all that sort of stuff absolutely it's one of those chicken and eggs until there are more women there it'll be much slower to change now in fairness it is changing but the the change is slow um, and until we have a critical mass of women within political parties and their wider political structures, that change is going to continue to be slow. And, and that's a large part of why we, Women for Election, are doing what we can to, to bring about that change. Um, because until there are enough women in there, those changes will be slower in coming. And, and it's not through lack of will more often than not. It's, it's simply... I suppose, a lack of awareness until the, the, the problem is highlighted, people mightn't pick up on it unless it affects them. Uh, and that's, a, that's obviously a big part of the work that you do. What would you say then to a woman who's listening who um, something you've said perhaps strikes a chord with her or things, yeah, I mean, I do do a lot of work in the community. I care about people. I, w- I think I would be good at representing uh, people and my community, my local area. What are the next steps if a woman is interested in trying to get her foot in the door in, the, in political life? Well, the next steps I suppose, are are dependent on the woman because there's no one clear pathway there. Um, you know, if it is a woman who's active within a political party, the next steps are to be building those alliances and links and putting herself forward uh, for selection, that selection convention. If it's a woman who's thinking of running as an independent, she needs to be getting the message out there. I suppose at a broader level, what I'd be saying is, is to women who are thinking about it, who know that they would make a good candidate, who know that they are a good politician, is to to do it. Because, you know, as as sure as anything, next time round, there will be 158 TDs elected in our next general election. Whoever puts themselves forward, the uncertainty is that there will be 158 TDs elected to the doll. We need to make sure that there are enough women putting themselves forward within that. And if you... Uh, if you as a woman sitting at home uh, or sitting in, at your desk and work thinking that you want to do it, if you don't do it, who will? Uh, because we need women to be putting their, their 
hands up and putting themselves forward. Women for Election will be delighted to help them with that. Um, if they want to get in contact with us, they could drop us an email, hello at Women for Election. They could give us a ring at 016728050 or they can look at our website, womenforelection.ie or across social media. We we do provide the training and support. Um, so we are there to help you get in contact and, and we will do what we can to help. Well, thanks so much, Kirin, for chatting to us on Spirit Radio this morning. That's Kirin de Bush, Bush, who is the CEO of Women for Election. Very interesting organisation. And as Kirin mentioned there, you can go to their website, womenforelection.ie. They do have an upcoming training uh, tomorrow, I believe, which is all in relation to SIPO regulations. So that's the standard of public office where it's looking at um, how you can take in money for a political campaign and, and practical things like that. Also, they have an event coming up on the 3rd of December called Women in Europe. And there's going to be a Christmas networking event a nice one with a glass of wine as well so lots coming up and you can get all the details of that on womenforelection.ie well, every Wednesday around this time we have our prayer coach slot and it's a brilliant slot where we just chat to loads of different people who are used to kind of helping people in just their spiritual life how to pray how to talk to God how to get closer to God and coach is probably appropriate for our next guest because he works directly with young people and really tries to do that to help them to get to know their faith better but also to help them be the best that they can be of themselves that's what God wants from us using our gifts and our talents and helping them to figure out well what what are the next steps in my life what what am I being called to do well he's helping to start a new initiative for young people in Ireland called Christ in Youth and he's also a keen sportsman with a direct connection to Ireland's famous victory over the All Blacks on Saturday. So producer of this programme, Steve, would, would be, I'd be in big trouble with them if I didn't at least touch on that on the line. Tell us a little bit more. We have Johan van der Fleer from Christ in Youth. Johan, good morning to you. Good morning, Wendy. Thanks for having me on. All right, we'll start with the rugby and then we'll get to the, the serious stuff, the prayer code stuff. Tell us a little bit about uh, the match. Uh, of course, your, your brother Josh was playing. How did your family participate? Were you all there? Uh, it was an unreal night. What a night to be involved, I think, for my brother. And uh, it was such a special occasion to be there. The whole family were there. We were, you know, we ended up celebrating, staying after the end with the rest of the 50,000-odd fans, you know, stayed after the final whistle and uh, were cheering on the lads. And, uh, you know, we got to spend a bit of time with Josh after the game and uh, with a few of the family of the players and stuff. And it was a really amazing night, such a night to be uh, for Irish rugby, but then for the nation as well. I just thought it was such a special time. So really proud of my brother. And, uh, you know, we, we, we had a good time afterwards. And then we even went home and uh, watched the match again on having recorded it. So uh, that's how much of a buzz we were on. So it was an amazing time. Yeah, and I think everybody was buzzing. Everyone in my house was as well. And obviously, you know, when it comes to rugby, and so many young people love it, love watching it, love participating in it, love being kind of being part of a team sport and all that sort of stuff. It's something that gets a lot of young people really passionate and exercised. How can we, uh, and, and perhaps you can share with your experiences working with young people, how can we try to encourage that type of a, of a passion and a connection to faith? Well, um, yeah, you're right. Rugby, you know, for me as well growing up was, was I suppose, my main source of enjoyment and fulfillment, you know. And, uh, and as I grew older, um, and, and as well, actually, in the early years, my faith was became uh, part of that, actually became really passionate about it as well. Um, and, I, and I think that the reality and the importance of uh, mentors, parents, uh, or even peers coming alongside young people and, and actually asking them questions about their faith, um, 
you know, bringing them along to things like outside of, uh, you know, school or church or whatever, but bringing them along to things so they can experience um, God moving in their lives. And I think, you know, this this generation now, it's, it's an amazing young generation that, you know, is, is, is the future, really, you know, we, and that's an obvious statement, but, you know, they are passionate, they are the most connected generation that has ever ever lived, you know, and, and despite all those things of being so connected, there's actually, you know, there's areas of loneliness and actually not having satisfaction or finding fulfillment in the things that they are doing. So I think it's really important for us to, you know, in the church and in schools and in, in environments to create these places for these young people to experience God, to experience in a way that actually they can be passionate about it, they don't have to be timid about it, and they can enjoy their faith and they can, it can be a part of everyday life. And that is a really interesting point that you've touched on just about where this the kind of young generation is at, Johan, just in terms of being connected and all that sort of stuff. But it's also in many ways a really difficult time to be a young person, even things like just the pressure that's put on young people into, you know, appear to be a certain way or into certain things or, or you know, I feel like that social media and that it's kind of uh, really amplifies peer pressure, which of course we all experienced at one point or another. And I'd imagine it's quite hard for young people to find that real sense of identity because there's so many mixed messages. Well, there certainly is, yeah. And, and as you said, stuff like media, um, different things coming at them in school environments, like what we see with the, the rise, essentially, of what we call secularism, uh, which would say to young people now that your that truth is whatever your opinion is, can actually be kind of a dangerous thing because what we can see is that young people's opinions and uh, of what truth is are actually being shaped by their culture and about their peers uh, and, and those who are around them. So I think... What we we need to do in, in the church and, 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 you know, whether, like, even in secular, secular society, actually say, look, you guys can make your own choices. You can you can develop your own opinions, but let's do this in a way that is actually not just going to be completely shaped by what others around you think. So, for example, I, I was with the other day, I was with um, a bunch of lads from a very well-known Dublin school, and, you know, I was talking to them a little bit about my faith and sharing with them, you know, my experience with God. And, and, and looking at them as a whole, I wouldn't, like as I was talking to them, I wasn't really, I wasn't quite getting the sense that they were really receiving it or actually interested. But then afterwards, they had a time where they could really have this their own kind of personal reflection uh, by themselves, whether that be with God or by, be with themselves. And then afterwards, they came and they started asking some questions to some of us uh, individually. And I started, they started to ask questions and say things like, you know, I, I never would admit this to my mates, or um, you know, I, I wouldn't really feel comfortable talking to other people about this. But actually. You know, I do think there's something about this God thing. I think there's something about this faith that really encourages me. And, and, and I want I want to be able to pray. I want to be able to talk to God. I just don't know quite know how to do it. So I think for me, it's, it's been really encouraging to see that actually below the surface, you know, whether with all this stuff that's coming at, uh, at kids in the media and, you know, what what culture and popular opinion is, is presenting to them, there is this underlying thing deep within them that they're like, no, we want truth. We want, uh, we want to seek it for ourselves. We want to be a realness. I think one of the beauties about this, this generation that's growing up is, you know, they see, they see faith things and they'll call it out. You know, they're not afraid of it. And, you know, we've seen, like, in uh, recent times in Ireland, what happens when young people get activated, you know, and they actually can change society. So, um, so I think, you know, for me, I'm quite encouraged looking at the, the environment of young people in Ireland. I know it can be, you know, 
it can be uh, presented as quite bleak, but I, I think there's a, there's a lot of good things happening out there. It's really interesting, Ivan, because actually we had a group of young people here in with us yesterday, five of them all kind of 20-somethings sharing about their faith, and they said something very similar in that there's a real hunger out there yeah. from young people. And I think that perhaps because people... In, in a way think that not to be true when it is is that there we're almost too um, shy in just sharing with our faith about our faith with young people absolutely and you know one thing that we would love to see is that young people can live without being timid about their faith and uh, you know I think that we do need to at some stage in our life stand up for, for what we believe and actually um, I think that young people are trying out for someone to walk them through that process you know we did uh, Christ, we've done this research with Barna, which is one of the re- uh, leading Christian resource uh, companies in the world. Uh, two years ago, and over the last couple of years, we've been doing this research project called Finding Faith in Ireland. And it's been asking young people, both in church, like people who have a faith, and then those who don't, uh, about God and about faith and all these sort of questions. And what is really interesting is that 71% of um, young people will identify as Christians, but when you ask them those questions, like, uh, like what, what does that mean, they don't quite know. But, but what a lot of them will say is that if they come to faith or if they continue on in their faith, there's like two major factors that stand out. And, uh, you know, one of those would be a mentor or like a person um, who is close to them, whether it be a mom or a dad um, or peers around them or youth workers, parish workers um, and volunteers who have actually just simply asked them questions about their faith and get them thinking and get them actually asking those questions of themselves. They don't just, not just something that they forget about. Uh, and the other thing would be, that they said was really impactful was um, was going away to something uh, and experiencing uh, an environment with a bunch of uh, people their own age where faith is being presented to them in a way that they understand and they feel free to express themselves. So stuff like events and weekends away, pilgrimages, um, you know, like you think people going off to Lourdes in France and, um, you know, and there's places in like Germany and around the world and, and then here in Ireland. And we would love to see more of that happen. Which is really encouraging because for people who are thinking of doing events or things like that, saying, okay, young people are crying out for this, it works. I know one of the things, Johan, that Christ and Youth is really trying to focus on is just help people um, to, to figure out, you know, uh, when they when they start that, when they have a relationship with God, they start one or they renew one, they work on it, that they can actually go, okay, uh, let's see what God wants me to do with my life. Uh, how does that work and how do you communicate that with young people? Well, you know, we believe that every child, every young person is special and has God-given abilities and talents and, you know, it sounds quite dramatic, but a destiny as well. And we, what we want to do is actually really connect them with that destiny and provide the environments where they can have freedom to discover those things, you know. So, you know, in the local church, well, we need to do it through the local church. We want to empower the local church uh, and youth workers resource them in order so that they can actually spend this time, their time and invest in the youth and encourage them and pulling out those those inner things in them that um, that we believe that God is actually calling them to do. So I believe that there's dreams in there, and there's a lot of young people who, you know, they're like looking at life, and there's like there's so many different op- opportunities and options now of things to do, but they just don't know quite know what to do. But what we would love to see is that they can learn how to tap into the abilities and the talents and the special uniqueness that they, each of them as an individual have in order for them to live out their life. Um, so it's not like... For us, it's, like, it's not just about getting them to church. We want, to, we want young people in church, but it's about showing them like that, that they can have an individual relationship with God on a day-to-day basis and that it can be normal. It doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be airy-fairy. 
And it's something that I really believe actually changes people's lives is when, I, when they wake up in the morning and actually realize they can have a normal day-to-day relationship with God. I think it's so special. So in, in order to see that happen, you know, I think, you know, what we are doing in the church is actually we, we, we want to run events for young people. We want to resource youth workers. And we want to, you know, we're, we're looking at maybe doing mission trips in the future. So that's the idea, you know, based on this research and stuff where young people go out of their current environment, go away with a bunch of friends and actually experience uh, a different, you know, environment of faith or, you know, time with God. So, you know, we're really believing that the youth of Ireland are actually the future of the church, right? So it is our job, and I think it's churches and parishes' job to connect them into that future, um, you know, and connect them into God, who is the true source of encouragement and empowerment, we believe, you know? Um, and we believe that once they have that, then they can, you know, really go on it and change society. Which I think is something, as you say, that we need to all focus on together, young and old, across churches, to say, how can we equip young people, support them? Because, as you say, Jan, they are the future of the church. Just finally wanted to ask you, in the work that you've been doing with young people, when when that kind of seed is sown and that message lands and you have, like you are given the example of, of guys that come up to you and say, um, you know, I, I know that there's something to this God thing and they just kind of need the courage to kind of step forward in their faith and kind of grow up. What sort of difference have you seen it make in a young person's life when they start to have a relationship with God? Well, you know, for many, I would say it's like a difference between night and day. Like, you, you, you look at a young person who's like, you know, for, I'll give an example of my own life, you know, someone who was very insecure in school, very shy, having, having a, someone who walked alongside me, like a key person in my life, mentor, a youth worker actually who came into my life and started uh, speaking encouragement into me, you know, I started to notice actually just being able to like walk a little bit taller, a little kind of head back, um, walking a little bit more confidently as an individual. And it is so noticeable that when, you know, encouragement is so much more, is so much more powerful than any doubt or fear. And uh, we're, we're, you see that young people now these days, you know, mental health and all this kind of stuff is so prevalent, the topic in our, in media and all this kind of stuff. But we find that encouragement, like true encouragement, actually obliterate doubt and obliterate those sort of anxieties. So, um, you know, I, I've seen countless young people come, come to actually, it's, it's about transformation. It's not just about ticking a box saying, now I'm a Christian. It's actually about transformation. And God, God really cares about that. He, doesn't, he, wants, he cares about the journey. It's not just about a tick-the-box Christianity. It's about young people actually coming alive and actually pulling out those special things that are in them and, and allowing them, giving them the opportunity to walk confidently in that. So, I've, I've just seen, I've seen Jesus do amazing things in people's lives. Just it's, it's a matter of uh, people, uh, young people asking those questions and allowing themselves to go on that journey. Some uh, practical things that people can get involved in. You have an upcoming prayer night, Johan. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yes, we do. So on um, Friday, 23rd, that's this week, um, in Dublin Central Mission at 7 o'clock, we're going to be running a prayer night. It's going to be a mixture of prayer and worship. So... Um, you know, we're doing this because, you know, Jesus prayed and he went off to pray and, and, and despite who he was and all the things that he did in the Bible, it says he went off to pray regularly. And we believe that any, any kind of, any movement, uh, or ministry or, um, you know, project we want to do, we want to cover it in prayer. But what we're doing is we're gathering a bunch of different organizations, churches, and, uh, people of all ages to come and actually say, look, let's agree with what God wants to do in this land and let's pray for it to happen. I think we should, uh, you know, what we'd like to see is that the, the church would really be sowing into this uh, next generation, and they are, and it's just a matter of we want to pull people together. So we have our friends in Alpha, Scripture Union. These are all organizations that are working directly with youth every day. You know, people like Untober Nua, 
um, like Crown Jesus Ministries, Exodus, and um, and like many others are going to be coming along, and we're going to be presenting like this is this is what we're doing and an opportunity for people to pray. It's not just an advertisement night; it really is for people to come along and say, "I want to invest in the future of our country here. I want to invest in the future of our youth." Um, so we're going to come along and agree with what God wants to do with them and an opportunity to pray. We'll also have offbeat donuts. So whether you have a passion for prayer or a passion for donuts, I encourage you to come along. So that's at seven o'clock, and uh, we'll go for you know nine thirty or ten. But yeah, yeah, people can come and go. So that's in Dublin Central Mission in Lower Abbey, Lower Abbey Street. It sounds like it's going to be a wonderful night of prayer. And sure, what better way to seal the deal than donuts as well, Johan? Thanks for joining us on Spirit Radio this morning. As Johan mentioned, there, Christ and Youth are hosting that prayer night this Friday. That's the twenty third of November at seven thirty in Dublin Central Mission, which is in Lower Abbey Street in Dublin City Centre. And it's really just as Johan said, coming together in prayer to say, "Hey, uh, young people are the future of the church. Let's pray for that together." I think sometimes what happens when we encounter someone who has a disability, especially a physical disability, something that we can see when we don't know the person, you know, when we're just walking around the street. So it could be somebody who perhaps can't walk or a visually impaired person and you see them walking with the stick. I think our normal and uh, natural instinct, thankfully, is to want to be able to help, want to be able to do the right thing. Um, But sometimes... uh, because we're we're not sure of what to do or the best way to handle a situation that can stop us from doing anything at all or helping at all. Well, our next guest from his own personal experience has lived with significant sight loss for many years and he has put together just a really, really helpful book for people just like I've mentioned where he's saying, this is my personal experience, but this is also my advice on how to best help people who are in my situation, how you as a sighted person can interact with someone who's visually impaired. So in studio to tell us a little bit more about his book release, which is called Insights into an Unsighted World. We have author Robert Thompson with us in studio. Robert, good morning and thanks so much for coming in to us today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, first of all, before we talk a little bit about the book, Robert, you might just tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience of sight loss. Well, I had normal sight for most of my life and I was working in business and uh, driving a car and uh, all such activity and reading material quite easily. And then about the year 2000, I had to give up driving, which wasn't the end of the world, but I continued working. And in 2007, I had a very serious setback over a period of two months. Uh, My sight went from being able to see people to not being able to see people, being able to read to not being able to read, and being able to watch TV to not being able to see it. And that was quite a significant, very serious hit for me in life, which changed the direction of my life from there, really. It's such a dramatic change, as you say, two months in such a short space of time. And I would imagine it's different in many ways to say somebody who is born blind and this is the the world that they have always known and have learned to navigate from from the moment that they were born. But when you have lived in a world where you've had sight and then it's taken away from you, does that make it more difficult just trying to adjust to a, a new world that you're now living in? Well, of course, there are pluses and minuses in that I can remember all of the detail of like what trees look like and what a dog looks like and how, what people look like from when I had sight, whereas blind people would never have had that appreciation. So that and uh, <coughs> that enabled me to be able to adjust probably more easily in that I could understand where things were in, the, in my house and so on. So there was that level of knowledge from beforehand which became quite useful in, in, a, in, a, in a, the adaption process. 
as you say, just kind of knowing where things are. But is there kind of what happens in that situation, Robert, where someone starts to lose their sight just in terms of practical supports of helping you to try and uh, navigate it? It's one thing maybe in your house where you where you know where the spoons are and you're kind of learning, uh, relearning those things. But then once you step outside your front door, what's it like then? Well, you have to learn a whole new way of getting around and interacting with people and how to get things done. Um, my sight from that point deteriorated slowly, um, so I was still able to get around reasonably well with the use of a, of a cane, which I was trained how to use. I, I could walk downtown, and I would walk quite frequently for the exercise as well as getting there, um, going into shops and so on and asking things. Um, more recently, it's got more difficult even to find shops, but you usually ask somebody, and people are very willing to help once asked, uh, but they usually don't have an idea how best to help. So I would usually give sp- little hints of kind of how to help, like can I walk on your right-hand side, for example, and things like that. Uh, so they're the sort of practical things you learn. And getting buses, for example, I get to the bus stop, I stand with my cane out, and the buses stop, uh, doesn't matter what number it is, and the bus drivers are not a bit concerned the fact that I stopped the wrong bus, and they'll always shout out to me what bus number it is, and things like that. So you learn all those little practical things of, of getting around in just daily life. So the, in, in your experience, Robert, in general, are people really quite willing to help and want to help, but they just ne- kind of need more of those practical tips like you've mentioned? Yeah, well, some people see you and immediately come to your help, uh, but most people uh, pass by. But, for example, looking for a shop, uh, I will perceive a shadow. That's all I can see of somebody coming down the street, a moving shadow. And I will ask them, would they mind telling me, is this such and such a shop? And most people kind of are a little bit kind of alarmed that somebody has stopped them in the street. They're probably going to their mind, kind of, what's this uh, th- What's this about type of thing? But once they see my cane, straight away they're very helpful and people will go out of their way to take it to the next shop, you know. You've had a few, many, many experiences that you, you talk about in the book of just navigating the new the, the world now with with experiencing sight loss. But one of the things, Robert, that you talk about is having to give a speech at a wedding. Tell us about that. <laughs> That was a very significant turning point in, in, in my in my life at that stage. This is just after I had had that serious downturn in my sight. My son was getting married and you know how it is. Uh, people have to make speeches and the speech from the father of the groom just had to get made. Um, so And I wasn't going to let it pass because, uh, you know, kind of it's my son's wedding. So I was going to make the effort no matter what I did. Now, I had a little bit of previous experience in... in um, doing speeches in business now, nothing dramatic, and I'm not an impromptu speaker. But I had to tackle this without the ability to make notes or even write the speech out. Now, I did use my computer, but I wrote the speech out and memorised it. And on the day, um, I just got to the microphone and my, uh, I suppose my resilience from business came to my rescue and I was able to get through the speech quite well and everybody seemed to enjoy it. Now, that to me uh, turned me around a little bit in that I suddenly realised that I could call on all my previous experiences and what I was able to do in previous life and go through them and see, well, what can I not do of the previous ones? Like, clearly driving a car was gone, but other things, how can I adapt these things into a different way of life, a different world? And that was a significant turning point for me. So it was was kind of a mindset change, a bit of a light bulb moment. It was a light bulb moment, yes, absolutely. I'm thinking of a place that uh, I'm thinking of the last time I was in an airport, Robert, and in, in a London airport, and um, I, as someone who can see perfectly well, was quite overwhelmed with how busy it was and pe- everybody looking down at the ground, bustling around and like <laughs> being bumped into a fair few times. Have you had that experience of, of being in an airport and what's it like? Uh, yes. Well, first of all, to say that 
uh, all European airports are obliged to have assistance for people with disabilities. So once I can get myself to their desk, uh, they see me through. But I've had a few experiences too, and there's several stories in my book, apart from the advice. Um, one of the stories is about a night I was left behind at Liverpool Airport, and it's quite an amusing little story. Uh, but you have to sort of uh, assert yourself a bit sometimes when things don't go quite according to plan. But in general, I travel uh, to and from London quite a bit and the assistance service is, is marvellous, really. So you need to, to basically just be aware of those things as well and, and making sure that you connect up with them. But what about for, Robert, somebody listening, right, that sees somebody who's visually impaired, they either notice a guide dog or the, or the, the cane or whatever, um, what, what's, what, what should they do? How should they offer help in the kind of best way? What are some practical things that people should think about? Well, I'll I leave the di- guide dog bit aside for the moment because I haven't experienced of using a guide dog, therefore it'd be probably a bit presumptuous to maybe say too much on that front. But as to using a cane, which I use all the time uh, as my lifeline, um, I would, uh, uh, sometimes if I'm wandering on the street looking for somewhere, if that becomes obvious to a passerby, then I'm, I need help of some sort. Uh, and if you see me doing that or anybody else who's visually impaired, ask, can you help? But particularly don't, uh, grab them and say I'll take you here I'll take you there like across the road just li- first of all observe and listen are the most important tips of all and if it's to get across the road uh, how can I help rather than just taking them and uh, if it's looking for a shop or looking for something else you know how can I help is a, is a great question to ask and therefore you've obviously got to listen for the answer that's actually something I'm thinking about. So when you're in the shop then, Robert, and you're looking for the milk and the bread, or yeah. is it just a case of somebody having to help you actually find that stuff? That's just an everyday uh, chore that most of us take for granted. Well, daily shopping for groceries and the like, and I do live alone, so I've got to look after my own food. But I have excellent friends and my sister as well who takes me shopping for a variety of things that we need to get. But if I need to go downtown to go for, like the other day I was in the station shop, I needed some envelopes. I have to go in and find the counter. That's the first challenge. And when I get to the counter, does the person behind the counter realise that I can't see them or can't see what I'm looking for? And I usually make sure that my cane is fairly obvious. But once they realise that, they become very helpful. There are occasions when I actually have to brandish that cane a bit more strongly to get people's attention that, look, I'm sorry, I can't see here. But usually people, once they come on board, they're very good. One of the stories I wanted to ask you about from the book, Robert, is uh, that stood out for me was your experience in the John Lennon Airport at Liverpool. Um, and obviously you touched on airports a little bit. Um, but was there something specific about this this time that you wanted to share? Oh, well, that, on that occasion, I got left behind by accident at about 8 o'clock in a, in a uh, December evening when it was snowing in Dublin. So um, the feeling, first of all, the feeling of being forgotten overcomes you a little bit just to say kind of, now what do I do now? So you have to start adjusting your thinking pretty quickly and I just had to brave it out a little bit with the assistance people to get what I needed to make sure I could get uh, travelling home the following morning but I was committed to a nice sleeping on a, on a bench in the airport as a result and it, that didn't bother me that much. I, my more, biggest concern was making sure that I could get myself back home the follow, following morning which eventually worked out. But the story is interesting if you, if you want to read it. In terms of, um, I guess people might know this phrase as a buzz phrase, but mightn't fully understand what it actually means. You talk about social inclusion. How important is this so those who are visually impaired aren't isolated? Well, a couple of things there is this probably applies a little bit more in a situation where you have a familiarity and you know the people around. The difficulty can often be somebody says, good morning, Robert. And I say, who on earth was that? Uh, and they're gone by before I can even dream of thinking who they might have been. And they may think that I'm a little bit kind of standoffish by not responding. 
equally, I could pass somebody by in a room where there's a gathering of people who might know me, and I don't see them, and they say, kind of, wonder, what's wrong with him? He won't talk to me, simply because I haven't seen them. But also to think that uh, a visually impaired person standing in a group of people cannot see who's around, and therefore cannot approach somebody else to engage in conversation. So that's your move at that point. Uh, just go and talk to them and just normal communication rather than see them standing there isolated with nobody talking to them because they can't initiate conversation like, like that. It's all very simple, practical stuff that even though it's simple make, would make a huge difference to somebody, I would imagine. Um, th- one of the lovely things about this book, Robert, is that uh, profits from the book are going to some of your chosen charities. Tell us how that's going to work and how people can get their hands on the book well, as well. Uh, there are two charities. Uh, there is the National Council for the Blind of Ireland who do a tremendous work throughout the country in uh, training and looking after people who lose sight. Uh, and the other is the Irish Guide Dogs and I am hoping to get a guide dog next year. So those two charities are getting all the profits from this book and it can be uh, it, it can be bought from the Irish Guide Dogs website which is guidedogs.ie or from the NCBI site which they call Thriftify. Dot IE, and when you go in there, just go to the search um, button and search under Thompson being the author's name and you'll find it. And you can get it from those two sites. Also, if that fails, you can go to Amazon.ie. Fantastic stuff. I've been chatting to Robert Thompson, who's written a very useful book. It's called Insights into an Unsighted World. The aim of the book is really to help those who are sighted, to be able to assist those who are visually impaired or blind, um, just in everyday life. So em- empowering both people. Thanks so much, Robert, for joining us on Spirit Radio. Thanks for listening to our Spirit Radio podcast. Don't miss out. Subscribe today. Find out how at spiritradio.ie.